This podcast was recorded at 10.30 a.m., 19 January, Jakarta time. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. Enjoy the program. Welcome to Reformasi Dispatch. I'm Jeff Hutton, Regional Correspondent for The Straits Times of Singapore. And I'm Kevin O'Rourke, writer of the Reformasi Weekly Service, analyzing Indonesian politics and policymaking. Happy New Year, Jeff. In its 20th year, Happy New Year. Yeah, your, your newsletter enters its 20th year this year. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, only you are counting. I think it's I think it's incredible, I mean, especially when you said that probably no one else has written as much about Indonesia consistently in English in as you. In terms of quantity. In terms of quantity. In terms of, of, of quantity. Yeah, sheer yeah. verbiage, just <laughs> yeah. the verbal... Just the tonnage of verbal diarrhea just spewing. Never mind. <laughs> talk yeah. about thank, thank goodness my heritage is Irish. <sighs> <laughs> so, um, did you have a good holiday? Yeah, super. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good family time. Uh, well, uh, just before we get going, I want, I want to just do a couple. Uh, housekeeping notes. Um, we would be grateful if uh, listeners, if you could spare a dollar or two to go to buymeacoffee.com slash reformacy and make a donation. The, the money would go towards um, defraying the cost of doing the pod, which you know, can add up. Uh, we, there's licensing fees, there's costs related to um, the hosting the pods. Uh, there's Kevin's strange habits uh, he's got a rider and the contract only green m&ms and so that's a lot fees. of m&ms just the, the yeah. weight of the legal fees yeah. the legal fees he is always tying us up in litigation jeff what was that url again i i, I totally missed the url that you just mentioned uh buymeacoffee.com slash reform messy oh yeah yeah um hit up your we're hitting up our listeners, our uh, close family and friends. Um, we <laughs> are one in the same. <laughs> they are. That, that's right. There is a real. So the Venn diagram is one hundred percent overlap. One hundred percent overlap. Uh, and seriously, though, if we can, if we can raise a little bit of money, we could um, take the heat off Stephen there, uh, who he runs all this um, by. Uh, by a stationary bicycle, which powers a battery, um, yes. and he edits at the same time. So we could hire you know somebody else, some you know university kid who can get on the bicycle for him, um, <laughs> and that would be that would be really good. Um, Megawati Sukarnaputri used the 50th anniversary um, of of uh, of the PDIP uh, to make clear her intentions to nominate Ganja. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. no. <laughs> she refused to nominate the broadly popular central governor, uh, central Java governor Ganja Prano as uh, the party's standard bearer at um, next presidential elections. Uh, Megawati has laid to rest any doubt that she would make her intentions clear now that we're, you know, a mere 13 months away from the presidential elections. And in, um, in a two-hour speech at the PDIP anniversary gala party, event last week, the former president regaled 3,000 of attendees with a potted history of the PIP, which um, uh, listeners may recall stems from the Nationalist Party, the 
the PNI established by her father, President Sukarno. Uh, she, well, she wouldn't, uh, she stayed stumm on, on her preference for, uh, for the candidate. She made clear that it would be someone within the party. I think we got a little clip on that. Okay, play that, Stephen. Everybody's clapping their hands like they're expecting an announcement, but no. Is that right, Stephen? <laughs> <Something like that? laughs> Psych! <laughs> and then she goes, uh, and then she explains that she has the mandate from the party congress, as everybody knows, uh, to fully decide the decision about who's going to be the nominee of the party. Dan saya ketua umum terpilih di kongres partai sebagai institusi tertinggi partai, maka oleh kongres partai diberikanlah kepada ketua umum terpilih hak prerogatif untuk menentukan siapa yang akan dicalonkan. So she says that somewhat sardonically and then concludes with a, a, a wry grin about how you know, she uses a Javanese expression to, to say that uh, you know, she doesn't have to do anything she doesn't want to do. Stephen, you want to help out here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then she ultimately uh, comes out and says, uh, it's my business. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's sort of the key uh, uh, segment there, I think. I think, I think that that's our um, title, or our episode title. Enak aja. Aku sampai liatin. Aku bilang sama Mbak Buwana, Mas Nana. Lucu ya orang berpolitik sekarang ya. Jangan deh niruin. Loh kok kaya gitu ya? Gimana sih maunya? Emangnya gak punya kadar sendiri? And then she's talking about how she's uh, so annoyed by other people in other parties who watch her and try to wait for her and try to figure out what it is she's going to do. And then she says, yeah, it occurs to me that what is wrong with these people? Don't they have their own candidates to nominate? Okay. Oh, but what she didn't do is mention Ganjar at all. She made some side comments about um, uh, some of his allies, but uh, she steered right away from that. And we can um, discern some, we, we, we can come to some safe conclusions or inferences here, can, can we, Kevin? Uh, yeah, he was, might as well have been a ghost. Uh, there's a uh, videos of him uh, arriving in his vehicle in the parking lot and being mobbed by PDIP attendees at this high-level gala, thousands of party members and uh, members of the press, so that he could barely walk into the assembly and take his seat among 3,000 other PDIP members. And the same thing in reverse at the end of the day, when he had to leave and go to get into his car, he could barely make his way there because he was such a celebrity. And yet during the entire five-hour event, uh, he uh, he never got on the podium. 
his name never came up in the speech, even though Megawati was praising this person and complimenting that person and thinking about memories of some other person. And she brought up about you know, 15 or 20 different PDIP people and never made any mention of him. But her daughter got uh, pretty prominent attention, was up on the stage a few times, along with uh, Juan's brother. Um, uh, and uh, and then Megawati also uh, praised Juan as being pretty. Um, she had Juan's two teenage, I think, or college-age uh, offspring stand up and get introduced to the whole assembly. Um, and Megawati also took on board some of Puan's policy themes, especially gender equity. And it's something that Puan has been strong on. And Megawati has never been strong on that. Uh, but uh, Megawati really dwelled on that. And in fact, it's one of the few coherent messages that came out of a, a very good, tough, hard-hitting 20-minute speech that went on for two hours. <laughs> uh, I encourage listeners to go YouTube it. Um, yeah. It is yeah. quite a sight to behold. Um, yeah, you don't, you don't, you don't have to know. Yeah, you. Sorry, Jeff, you don't have to know any Bahasa Indonesia. Just no. YouTube it, listen to it, because it's all about gestures and facial expressions and intonations and uh, and you will rolling see. Up the eyeballs. Yeah, yeah, you will see though the hold that she has on the party. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, then, and then, yeah, that's the other thing. And then they cut away to three thousand people, all dressed in solid red, in rapt attention. Uh, for you know, yep. for the full two hours, including the president, the vice president, um, uh, the heads of a whole bunch of agencies, and a full one half of the cabinet. I counted the ministers there, and it was right about fifty percent of the cabinet was in attendance. She may as well have been a queen. She yeah. sort of had it was almost like a speech from the throne. She's 75. You would have thought that there would have been times when she maybe the energy dissipated. Uh, she managed to, to keep it pretty steady um, mm. and clearly enjoyed herself. But oh, yeah. Was on top of it, had them in the palm of her hand throughout the entire time and seemed to relish it. Um, mm. uh, although I didn't have the chance to go and ask people what they truly thought. Um, they, the, the crowd was with her. Um, one could, I mean, she could be excused for thinking that she, I mean, her, her control of the party is absolute. Um, so Ganjar now is left with a, a do I stay or do I go scenario. And if he goes, he risks reaping the whirlwind. I, he would have to break the party of his own volition be called a traitor and um, uh, risk the wrath of mega. Yeah, mega that's wrath. right. Yeah, it's hard to envision uh, anything remotely like an amicable uh, separation. So uh, even if Ganjar, in, in the best case scenario, were to leave the party, join the uh, United Alliance, the KIB, uh, win the election, form a government, he would then be contending with. Um, uh, Megawati's PDIP is probably the largest party as his opposition. Yeah. That would not be fun. And she would make it her um, life's mission to make his presidency hell. Yeah, yeah. And Puan Maharani is, is uh, no more well inclined towards him than Megawati is, I don't think. It doesn't seem that way. So, What has Ganjar done to piss her off, if anything? 
I think it's a lack of money. Um, he is the, the biggest regional head that the party has. Um, and I think the party was hoping for uh, much, much more support uh, from him for their uh, campaign finances. Um, but I think more importantly, it's just the implied future threat to Megawati as party chair because uh, she's really suffered having to share the limelight with Joko Widodo, who's a rank-and-file PDIP member from the district level who rose up to become president and garners more attention than she does. Uh, but, you know, Widodo is not a, a party manipulator uh, and mover and shaker and insider, uh, so he doesn't really pose a threat to her as a, as a potential uh, replacement as party chair, but I think Megawati sees Ganjar as somebody who's much more dynamic and assertive and uh, savvy than that way than is Widodo. And therefore uh, she, she's um, uh, nervous about his uh, future trajectory. That he may have designs on the leadership of the party. Yeah. Or even, you know, the, the, the party puts him there or the party uh, agitates to, to put him there. Yeah. Right. And assuming that he wins and then wins again, she'd be 85, 86. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is really, if she's going to make a, take a stand, this is it. Um, and I could see her thinking that she would lose control and yeah. control that she clearly relishes. Um, uh, that's that. I, can, can you riff a little bit about, this last stage, one one of the last blocks of of democratization of, of Indonesia, and one of the stumbling blocks, of course, is uh, institutional reform, but also party reform. Where mm. does where the ability for the parties to freely elect their leaders, the democratization of the parties, how significant is that in terms of a stumbling block? To um, to replace the elite in terms of, of the of the continued democratization of, of the country. Uh, well, it actually it, it wouldn't actually be that big a deal just because uh, the constitution provides for the direct popular election of the president. So hmm. party shouldn't really matter that much. They just really matter in terms of the legislature and the quality of the legislating that goes on there. Uh, however, the uh, Uriono administration and then the Widodo administration put in place and kept in place a very high nominating threshold of 20%. So that gives the parties massive clout in terms of determining who is able to run for president. And, right. and uh, so therefore, it's a big problem that none of these parties support reform and few, if any of them, have much in the, in the way of internal democratic structures for cultivating their own leadership, like you mentioned. Ironically, the most hardline Islamic party, PKS, is arguably Indonesia's most democratic party in terms of its internal structures. So, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a real weakness for Indonesia's uh, institutionalization of democracy, which is something that matters. You know, there, there's, it's always vulnerable to reversals and setbacks. Uh, so, Right. So if they lowered the threshold, the nominating threshold, that would go some way uh, to to checking the lack of democracy within the the party the parties which are more or less political vehicles for their elites for the leaders i'm thinking karindra for example 
Right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that's about right. Um, now, if it is Puan, if Puan is the pick, <laughs> Puan is the party pick, uh, fair to say the uh, PDIP goes down to defeat. And is that lesson learned? And then Mega backs away? No, I mean, no, no, no. Because if you look at the history of PDIP, Megawati is uh, uh, quite okay with being in the opposition. Uh, she's quite okay with losing a presidential election. Uh, she's done it before. <laughs> um, yeah. the, the, the lessons that she's drawn from her career to date are that you don't have to win the presidency. In fact, voters will come back and support PDIP uh, election after election after election, no matter what PDIP does. Uh, that's the lesson that she's, she's drawn from the past few cycles. So um, her stance potentially thwarting the career of this popular party figure, Ganjar, does not necessarily jeopardize the party's fortunes in the legislative election. She thinks that she can get away with it. And um, uh, she's not concerned about being in the opposition because she's been there before. So um, she's uh, very much sitting pretty and in control. And, and that's precisely what was uh, evident in the 50th anniversary speech. Mm. Her influence flows from the party, not yeah. necessarily from the center of power. However, the people who support her, like the uh, the uh, the functionaries, um, they rather like the ministerial portfolios and the agencies and the cars. I would have thought that they rather like power, and she can she can uh, keep them in line. Mm, yeah, she can because she just cycles through them. And anybody who voices any sort of uh, independent mindedness is gone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's happened over and over again. Yeah. Okay, we'll leave it there. Good luck, Ganjar. <laughs> Godspeed. <laughs> don't, don't know where you go from there. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, podcast listeners, Jeff here. If you appreciate what we do here at Reformacy Dispatch, please consider supporting us. You can go to buymeacoffee.com slash Reformacy and choose the amount of money you want to donate. Kevin, Stephen, and I love doing the show, but we're looking for some money to hire a new editor, pay podcast hosting fees and, and licensing. That's buymeacoffee.com slash Reformacy. And back from the break. <clears throat> so for the longest time, there's been a handful of institutions, government agencies that were held in very high esteem from most of the public, the Corruption Eradication Commission up until I think it was 2019 or so when it was subsumed by the police with one of them. Amazingly, the military still. Uh, also the KPU, the the election commission and um that now has come under a certain amount of strain when it was revealed in parliamentary testimony that the kpu was under undue pressure from the presidential palace to recognize one of the minor parties can you walk us through that and the significance of of this party is uh, is the kpu now in in question Yes, it is. And this sounds like sort of a, one of these minor types of arcane affairs and complaints that arise uh, all the time. 
Uh, this one, I think, might be more significant. It, it does pertain to a very small party that has virtually no chance of getting any parliamentary seats. Uh, that's Galora, which is an offshoot yeah, of the yeah. Islamic Party PKS. But Galora is significant because uh, they have uh, the Indonesian political equivalent of an angry badger. That's uh, Fahri Hamza, who is just a, 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 a incessant, trenchant critic of Anis Baswedan. So I think there are some people maybe in the Widodo administration who see him as a useful person to have out there harping on Baswedan because the Widodo camp regards Baswedan as their primary opponent. Uh, so a secretary general of a provincial level branch of the General Election Commission, a KPUD, KPUD wrote a WhatsApp message to other members of the KPUD claiming that the central KPU pressured them pressured him to qualify Galora to be a valid election participant by artificially changing its eligibility status. And, um, you know, KPU members deny it. And um, there's also denials from the government. You know, the, this message had said that the KPU was acting on instructions from the presidential palace, from the home affairs minister um, and the coordinating politics minister and others. Uh, so uh, the thing is, um, you know, there's uh, avenues for redress uh, for these members of the KPUD who, who have brought this uh, to the public attention. And so it's not necessarily going to fade away into insignificance. And uh, at stake, like you mentioned, is the uh, perceptions of the KPU itself. Yeah. Um, what... What does it mean to be an active participant in the election? Uh, it means that you've got your candidates on the ballot, obviously. Um, mm -hmm. But when you have no hope of electing anyone to parliament, just how much, how significant would that be? Well, actually, I mean, some, some parties do have hope. Sometimes uh, NASDEM uh, right now has 10% of parliament, and that's one of these parties that came up from nothing, basically. Uh, so, yeah, there's always a chance. Plus, uh, even if you end up with zero seats in parliament because of the very high parliamentary threshold of 4% uh, that still applies, uh, you can still win seats in provincial and district level assemblies where there is no threshold. So even uh, a relatively small share of the vote can win you uh, maybe a, you know, a couple of seats and a, a toehold. So uh, meanwhile, there's state funding for campaigns um, and it gives you a chance to go out and and solicited for contributions. Uh, so, yeah, you know, it's one of those things that you know, if you can do it, you do it. So they do it. <laughs> right. It's, so it's another oar in the water uh, is the thinking um, yeah. in rowing, I guess, with the PDIP and against uh, the former governor of Jakarta, Anis Baswedan. Who, yeah, so. You know, there's no love lost there between Jokowi and Anis. So, I mean, that's that's the thinking, right? We got one more. There's a help from from another party, but I guess I don't fully appreciate the animosity between the two men. It's um, I wonder if you can walk us through that and why it would be helpful to have an angry badger um, going up going against Anis. Uh, well, I. I think that ultimately it just pertains to personal networks that don't overlap at all. And 
the people around Widodo, including Widodo's uh, elder son, who's a mayor of Solo, uh, and his uh, son-in-law, who's the mayor of Maidan, have a lot at stake, a lot of interests, and uh, they really need to bring about a smooth succession to a relatively friendly regime that is not going to undermine and challenge those interests um, the way that Widodo himself challenged the interest of the Yudiono family eight years ago. Yeah, don't so, want that to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so it's really that. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Widodo and Baswedan used to be close. Um, Widodo put Baswedan on his campaign transition team in between the 2014 election and the inauguration and then in the cabinet as education minister. But then something went wrong and Widodo sacked Baswedan. Then Baswedan challenged Widodo's preferred Jakarta governor candidate and won. And, and then, so Baswedan had a job. Ugly to have, yeah. Yeah. And then Widodo didn't like the way that Baswedan was performing um, his old job as Jakarta governor. Mm. <laughs> you, you think that was it? Uh, well, <laughs> well, the ego is just. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's tolerant. The, the idea of a loyal opposition is weak. Uh, so. Yeah. Um, just a just a note there, uh, listeners. Anis Baswedan, if you're if you're listening, we are trying to get you on the pod. If you don't uh, come on the pod, we're going to get the angry badgers. So just a, just a note. He doesn't have anything else to do. <laughs> He's not going to win any seats. He doesn't mind coming on the podcast. So there you go. No, Don't pick Fahri a fight Hamza with us. Come on, Reformacy Dispatch. Fadi Hamza gets plenty of attention for himself as it is. Um, there is oil and gas in the tuna, Natuna. Regulators approved development of the tuna field in a remote part of the North Natuna Sea contested by China. The project involves two investors from the UK and Russia. It will tap a vast reserve in relatively shallow water, but the gas has a high carbon dioxide content requiring added investment and processing. The, the gas will undergo export to customers in Vietnam, which is actually a heck of a lot closer to this gas field than, uh, than Indonesia. It's incredible. You look at the, look at the map here and it butts right up into, I would imagine, well past the nine dash line. Um, I would have thought that this would be a flashpoint of sorts appropriate for an oil and gas field uh how is this going and um it seems like strange bedfellows the russians and the chinese and the vietnamese and they um they have competing interests yeah this uh project has uh, a little bit for everybody it's uh really uh, something else there's it's a huge uh, resource of gas um which is uh, something that indonesia probably actually needs as a transition energy right now uh, so the plan is to export it, at least initially, to Vietnam. But um, yeah, there's plenty of gas there to be developed for a long time yet. Um, mm. But yeah, it's uh, it's way, way out there in the South China Sea, which Indonesia is referring now very pointedly as the North Natuna Sea. And um, there's a uh, Chinese Coast Guard vessel there as we speak, uh, shadowed by Indonesian naval vessels. So it's really a statement on the part of the Indonesian government that the energy ministry regulators, uh, SKK Migas, gave the go-ahead for the plan of development last week uh, for this project, despite uh, the clear concerns of China. China expressed them through a diplomatic note last year, 
um, as far mm-hmm. back as 2021. Uh, but Indonesia is defying that and uh, proceeding with this um, uh, because uh, Indonesia is in the right. Uh, it's, uh, the economic exclusion zone is very clear, and this is their resource, and they can do with it what they w- wish. And, uh, and the, the nine dash line has no validity. So, um, but um, you know, we'll see what this does to the bilateral relationship. You know, there's so much at stake. It's such a, a complex and broad relationship, and remains to be seen how uh, the Chinese uh, decision makers are going to react. Yeah. I don't know how across the issue you are, but, you know, what is the significance of a Coast Guard vessel in that area when, um, you know, one vessel doesn't seem to be too much of a, of a provocation? A dozen or so with uh, fishermen as well, uh, swarming uh, oil, uh, oil and gas platforms might be something else entirely. It's just an, is it is this an escalation sending a, a coast guard vessel, or is that just status quo par for the course? You would expect that they they wouldn't they wouldn't concede entirely because it would just look bad for their other claims. That's right. Yeah, um, some reports indicate that this particular Coast Guard vessel has been on station in this area uh, since December. So uh, it's not necessarily a, a new escalation, if it is an escalation. Uh, but it, it really depends on what uh, uh, behaviors uh, the vessel takes, and uh, yeah, and whether whether more join it. So, um, but, and that uh, that feels unlikely, right? When you consider pretty good relationship between Indonesia and China right now, I would have thought. Yeah, yeah there's so much at stake, um, especially with uh, Russia not proving to be uh, the most valuable ally right now for China. So that actually gives Indonesia even more leverage uh, as a source of the resources that China needs. Uh, but uh, at the same time, it, it seems at times as if decision-making from China regarding maritime territorial issues uh, is utterly divorced from any other considerations uh, about the relationship. And it seems like there, there's you know, two different uh, channels of decision-making there in Beijing about uh, these types of things. The head of the Indonesian military is a, is a Navy guy. Um, he would he's more inclined, you think, to uh, send assets there to stake uh, Indonesia's claim. I think so. Absolutely. He's already said that. That's uh, Yudo Morgono. So he'd been the chief of the Navy uh, uh, under Andika Prakasa, who retired on 20 December. So he's just taken over. And uh, one of the very first things he did in those first two weeks of uh, office as military chief was to declare that there's going to be a joint um, uh, exercises between the Navy and the Air Force uh, in the North Natuna Sea. And again, he was very explicit to, to use that phrase, North Natuna Sea. And he also said that these exercises have uh, taken place in the past when he was the regional commander for that area and that the exercises were, quote unquote, effective. Mm. When you look at the map, it is a heck of a long wave from uh, the, you know, the main islands, not to mention uh, it's even quite a long way from Natuna Island. Um does Indonesia have that capacity to maintain a presence and, uh, and to sustain it, to project a presence and to sustain one? Mm. 
I mean, it can develop the field uh, if it needs to protect the field from uh, hostility or hostile acts from a, a power. Uh, no, uh, I don't think the Indonesian Navy is strong enough. Um, there are some some air assets. Indonesia has a small fleet of Sukhoi fighter jets, uh, which are pretty formidable. Uh, but mm-hmm. in answer to your question, no, <laughs> the, the Navy is not uh, powerful enough to, to really uh, mount much of a fight against anybody, I don't think. So if push came to shove, uh, the, the, the Chinese might win. The question is, will the Chinese bother pushing? Answer is probably not. But it is still very interesting that on this case, uh, you know, in, Indonesia will not be moved one way or the other and, and maintaining its, uh, its neutrality, its state of neutrality um, uh, toward China and its claims. So is it, wait, actually, is it neutrality? I mean, have they been, uh, have they commented it on about uh, China's claims of the, of the South China Sea? Uh, yeah, there's been a lot of friction about this particular area of the North and Tuna Sea. There's been uh, uh, altercations at sea between the vessels uh, of the two countries. So, with yeah, respect to Indonesia's territory, but yeah, Indonesia's the broader territory. The, the, the broader claims, China's broader claims to the area. Indonesia has been rather stum on that, right? Well, Indonesia for for quite a few years had been pushing relatively strongly within the framework of ASEAN for a uh, rules-based approach to uh, resolving conflicts about this. And that came to nothing because ASEAN proved uh, incapable of um, handling that. But um, yeah, that's about it, though. Otherwise, no, I don't think Indonesia has taken uh, too many stances. It's kind of like they're hoping for the best. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, we'll leave it there. Thanks a lot, Kevin. We'll see you next week. Okay. Great. Thank you, Jeff. See ya. And that's the program. Our editor is Stephen Handoko. Music by the Blue Dot Sessions. To support our podcast, please donate through buymeacoffee.com slash reformacy. For a free trial of Kevin's Reformacy newsletter, go to reformacy.info. This podcast is a production of On the Level Media. I'm Jeff Hutton. Bye for now. Thank you.